0: We're kind of, at the, we're turning the corner into the second half of chapter 19. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off right up at the top of the board here with these two words, the birds and the feast, all right? The birds and the feast. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word the birds. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've got a lot of them here in, uh, in Grand Island. I noticed... Uh, they can stop traffic here in Grand Island. I mean you're you're on 281 and here comes mother duck or goose and there's there you just you just stop. I'll tell you what first came to my mind when I hear the birds. How many of you remember Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds? <laughs> see Hitchcock, he was before, you know, special effects and all that stuff, but he would use that that music. And um, there's times when I'll see birds and you can almost hear it. I'm like, "Oh, ah. Not the birds. <clears throat> well, in this case, that is actually what's happening. We're going to compare two things. Just take a look at verse 17. It says, then I saw this angel standing in the sun. All right, so we're kind of coming out of this, this movement where John has has seen the white horse of God and his armies coming against our enemies. And now we're ready for the destruction, the downfall of our enemies. So he he looks up and he sees this angel that is reflecting the glory of God, thus the imagery of the angel being in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Um, Come and gather for the great supper of God interesting um, interesting little fast fact if you take up the genius World Book of Records and you look at the bird that flies higher than any other bird you'll find that it's not the eagle but the vulture it's the vulture can soar with great heights and looks down upon its prey. And that's kind of what I want you to, to picture in your mind because this calling together the birds is for a great supper. And this is one of the grossest, yuckiest feasts in all of the Bible. And there's, there's a reason for it. There's a comparative going on. Um, I started reading this and I was thinking back. Have you ever been to like a dinner where you sit down and you, you're served? And you kind of wonder what you should do with what's been served to you. Have you ever been to one of those dinners? Okay, I always think about my sister. When, when they were serving across the seas, um, they, uh, they had to, my, my brother-in-law, my, my colonel brother-in-law, they had to do these dignitary dinners. And so uh, they got invited to this home. And uh, it was Asian, so you didn't sit on a seat You sat down on the ground, and the table was just, you know, ground level. And so my sister's down, and they put a plate in front of her. And The first thing that they got was uh, these little miniature squids that were still moving on the plate. Now, me, I'm thinking, hey, that's what tables are for you, just throw that baby. (laughs) And she's like, no. There's no, because the table is on the ground. I'm like, oh, what did you do? She says, well, fortunately, they had this little cup in front of me, and I tasted it. Sucky, Really strong sucky. So she would be. <laughs> Squid goes down. That's what you need, right? I still remember... And you'll remember this. We went to a wedding feast one time. And, you know, it was uh, it was from uh, an Af- African country. So we sat down. And uh, they put the plate in front of us. And they come and they scooped out fish heads with the eyes looking at you. And I remember thinking to myself, mm-hmm. oh, boy. I felt like Jed, Jed Clamp. What's for, what's for dinner tonight, you know? Possum. Oh, yeah. Possum and fish heads. Bring it on, right? Well, this is a gross feast in the Bible and there's a reason for it is, is you're making a comparison. Every single time we go to the Lord's Supper, what are we really celebrating? The Supper to come, right? And uh, ever since this song was written, it just I just love to sing you know, this is the feast, right? A victory for our Lord. Well, this supper is another victory feast, but it's a different kind because you're seeing in it the complete destruction of our enemies. Martin Luther said, when you look at life, you have three great enemies. Your three greatest enemies are the devil. We're like, yep, we understand that. Your own flesh. And sometimes we'll say it this way, I am my own worst enemy. Who creates my downfall? Me. I do it to myself. So the devil, the flesh, and cosmos, the world. These are your three great enemies. And and so at the end of the Revelation, what you're seeing is, you're seeing the victory march of God on the white horses, the the angel army has come, and now with a sword that proceeds from his mouth, with just a word, he takes down the enemies. And so we hear the angel say, come and eat, come and eat birds, it's time, because the the enemies are going to be destroyed. And so you get this language, and it kind of turns your stomach, but... But just, just look at it, it says, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And you almost have this succession here pointing to those who are in power, right? The kings, we're the kings, we, we rule over our, our kingdoms. God says, no, I'm the king. Then you have uh, those who have, have been underneath the kings, the flesh of captains. Remember, a king was only as strong as what? His army. And so um, here's your army of demons that are going to, to, to fall and the birds come to eat, all the way down to the free and the slave, both small and great. In other words, the picture that he's giving you is, is, is holistic. The point of it is the enemy's collapse is complete. There's not one aspect of our enemy that's left to stand against us in eternity. Interesting, interesting some, some of the uh, transition here in verse 19. He says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathering to make war against him who was sitting upon the horse and against his army. So the birds are getting ready for this feast while the kings of the world and their armies are getting ready to do what? To fight against God, all right? We've we've seen before this word, right, Armageddon kind of pointing us to the Mount Har-Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. Har is Mount of Megiddo, okay? It's a real place. You can visit, in, visit it in Israel. It's a place where, biblically, a number of famous wars took place. And it's, it's a symbol in the book of Revelation for that place where men gather against God. What I would suggest to you is, as you look at this is that there, there is, in the end, this final push or effort to come against God. The more God seeks to try to change people's hearts, actually the harder the hearts become, the more men push back against God. And what I'd suggest to you is that throughout the entire book of Revelation, which covers the New Testament period that we're in and the period or the last half a time to come, this this war has been going on. It's going on right now, right? Right? Uh, we saw it introduced to us in a very clear way in the 12th chapter of Revelation, where the dragon is present, remember, can't kill the baby, and so the, he says, then I will go after the baby's babies, you, those who are birthed into faith. So we know this war is going on, and what's happening is, it's, it's, a, it's a war, okay? We don't hear about that war in the newspaper, we don't see any people on television. So I turn on CNN. I'm waiting for them to finally say this is about a spiritual battle that's going on against the forces of God. I hear none of that, but I turn to the Bible, and it's very clear there's a battle going on for souls. As as what the enemy pushes back against um, the Word of God and the way of God, um, which is what I think makes first. Verse 20, interesting, kind of think about this. Verse 19 says, here's he had the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. We're going to make war against the armies of God. Okay? Now, part of that war is happening at a spiritual level. Demons are what? Fallen angels. Okay? So we have fallen angels that are at work in our lives today. Demonically. But we also have the, the angel armies of God. Okay, we call them the Sabiath armies. And they are what? In battle for us. There's a battle that goes on at a spiritual level that causes Paul to always say to us, don't ever for, take your eyes off of this fact that you are in a spiritual battle, that there is an enemy who seeks to separate you from the way of Jesus Christ. Part, part, of, part of it you can actually see Right? You see in the way that people carry out their pushback against the way of God. Never is God absent. Never is God absent. And in the end, notice what he does. Verse 20 And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its its image, or its brand, if you will. Kind of walk back through that with me. You have the beast, you have the false prophet. Okay, remember these two? They're distinct from one another. One represents, if you will, more dynamically, the economic world, if you will. Uh, The political, economic world that we watch going on around us. The beast. The other is the false prophet, or the second beast. Which is what? False religion. Which actually does what? False religion tries to cause people to say what, what the political system is doing and what's happening economically. It's okay for us. It's good. It's not bad. You, you can join in with this, okay? Simplest example I can give of it, and then I'm going to come back to, to, to one other is, uh, when the church is saying to us as Christians, don't worry about this law that just got passed on marriage. It's okay for us. Uh, we should actually celebrate it. We should give thanks because finally we're living as what well, as Christians should live. We're not being judgmental. We're, we're, being, we're being right-minded towards you know, people who love each other and who want to get married. Okay. Um, last night I was getting ready to, to kind of crash out, and we had this um, night. Nylon, nightline came on, and they kind of reviewed this story. Uh, some of you remember where this this teacher in a school had an affair with a fourteen-year-old student. A 12-year-old student. And, um, of course, they, they put the teacher in jail, and then the teacher waited and, until they got out of jail, and they, they actually got married. And I think, they, I think they had kids when he was 14, right? Two kids. So I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, you know, here's this lady, and she's on a, what do they call it, a predator list, right? And I'm thinking to myself, no, wait a minute. Um... Why, why would a culture say, that's really bad, but these two people here that are same sex, it's, a, it's good for them to be able to be married. This is bad, this is good. What makes it bad and what makes it good? Because the decision to change the definition of marriage and the laws underneath marriage really rested upon a simple argument. And the argument was what? that our understanding of marriage is culturally conditioned and not really relevant for our times. So what's to say that that's bad? See what I mean? Why would you say that this teacher marrying this student is a bad thing? Isn't that kind of old-fashioned and irrelevant? And to be honest with you, when you're in Rome as this is being written, you would if you walked down the streets, you would visibly see pedophilia going on all around you. And the Romans, the Romans said, not bad. It's okay. So where is the church in all this? Well, if the church says, you know, you're, this is right. The, the, the po- politics are right. We're old-fashioned. We've kind of lost our way. We need to put our blessing upon this. That's the false prophet, the pseudoprophetase. And that's what he's talking about. He says the worst of the worst of all of the beasts is that first white horse that rides, this false religion that actually causes its adherents to say, yay, yes, we can join in with the world view. No, no, the world is your enemy. And we stand up with a word of truth against it. And where Revelation is taking us to then is to the downfall of the beast and the prophet. Now, I want you to notice two words here because I think they're they're interesting and I want to do a little cross-referencing. The first word is this word captured, okay? So I think this is interesting that the beast was captured. The picture that's given to us is what's interesting to me. In the Greek, the word for captured is epioste, okay? Epioste, I tried to, to write out its components here uh, in transliteration because there's two words that are getting put together that paint a picture for you of what it means for this beast to be captured. Epi is the first word. And epi means to surround. Okay? So during Epiphany, what do we say? Epiphanos. The word or the sound, the voice of God, send it around the world. That's Epiphany. All right, so if I say epi-este, what am I saying? Well, the second half is a verb. It's tithemi, okay? Tithemi means to put or to place something. And so if I put the two together, it's I'm going to put you into a place where you are surrounded, okay? So I drew a little circle here with a dot in the middle of it. The picture is, okay, God says two things. One, I will always protect, I will always protect those who belong to me. I will protect their faith. I surround you. And so I I know at any given point in my life, uh, you can do whatever you want to to me. You can torture me. You can, um, you know, kill me. But the one thing that stands firm in my life is the faith of God why I have a Holy Spirit who surrounds me. Right? He comes against my enemies fighting for me. All right, so when you put these two things together, you get this picture of this beast who is captured. He is put into a place where he is surrounded. Now, the imagery there is simply saying this, that our our enemy is limited. It's like he's in a cage. And that cage is the authority of God. So by the authority of God, all throughout the New Testament period, our enemy is what? Is locked down and the authority of God is above and over our enemy. He cannot, he cannot take, can't kill us, he can't take us out, right? He, he can only, he can tempt us, he can, he can possess those who are outside the faith, he can, he can come, come against us in an um, uh, obsessive way, but he's limited in what he can do. I gave you a reference here because I think it kind of paints this picture m- maybe in a, in a beautiful way. Over in Genesis 3, you see epititheme taking place in kind of a cool way. This is a familiar section for you. You'll recognize it Im- immediately, Genesis 3. And I'm taking you to the second half of Genesis 3. T- verse, let's go over to, to verse uh, 20 and following, and then we'll, we'll uh, pick up this idea. Okay. This is right after the fall of man. God has come into the garden and God actually um, speaks these words over Adam and Eve that are what I call the, 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 the primal curse. Okay. So this is hard for people to understand but be, because of the break that, that Adam's sin represents with, with God, the intimacy is broken you find that God in the garden puts a curse upon his own creation. And that curse will not be lifted or removed until he returns, second return. Okay? So you, you're literally hearing him place this curse over, uh, over man and over the earth. Okay? So at the very end of it, notice what happens. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So this is the grace side of the picture. I'm going to put a curse on my creation, but I will clothe you. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. All right? It's kind of interesting because what, what was the deception? If you eat of this fruit, you will become like us. Who's the us? Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You'll become like us. You'll know what is good and what is evil. Now, when, when this statement is made by the Lord God, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Is he equating man with God? No. no. What he's saying, though, is we, by taking the deception, put ourselves into that place where our nature, our natural born nature as we come into this world, is to be God. That's who we are. It's why Luther says one of the great battles is a battle with your flesh, because your flesh always seeks to be God. So when the Lord God speaks this, it's really interesting to me. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to himself. So this, is, this is Trinitarian speech. Behold, he says, look, look what's happened. The man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, does he know good and evil? Nope. Because he's under deception. Does he think he knows good and evil? Yep. All right, so what should we do? This is grace. One more time. Now, he says, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. When we get to the very end of Revelation, we're going to see this tree of life again. Okay. And remember in the garden, two trees. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life, eat of this fruit, live forever. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of this tree. So now, here's fallen man who believes he is God, and God looks at him and says, Whoa, what would happen if he now keeps eating of that tree of life? He'll live forever in this fallen condition. I don't want that for him. So what does he do? Therefore, it says, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. He makes it impossible for Adam and Eve to return to the Tree of Life or for anyone after them to come and eat of the tree of life. He does what? This tree of life, you see it, just watch it. Here's this sword. What's it doing? Epi-tithyme. It's surrounding that tree. You cannot come through this sword. So I like to look at that and think about sometimes the prayers that we lift up. I'll pray for my... My grandkids, and I say, Lord, would you place a hedge of protection around them? What am I praying? I'm saying, surround them. Keep the enemy away from them, okay? It's a good prayer to pray. Sometimes you'll find yourself under deep temptation. What do we pray? God, epititheme, me. Surround me. Surround me with your word, which is like that sword that prevents Satan to come in. It's the truth of God that protects us, okay? In the same way, our enemy is what? Surround you're surrounded, right? He is surrounded by what? By the truth of God and his authority. And that's really the picture that you're getting here is this beast is captured. And right now, that beast is captured. And guess what? His authority is limited by the word of God. At the very end, he's now taken and he is captured. And he is, he is no longer able to do what? Well, here's the second word. He's no longer able to do something that he's doing right now. Deceive. All right? See that? Go back to verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Okay, so at the very end, not only is Satan limited in his authority, but he's no longer able to do what he's able to do today, namely deceive us. It's kind of an interesting word. This is uh, the word for deception in Greek is eplausnason, and I always kind of transliterate it. it, so it looks like an E with a plan, asin. So he, yeah, he, yeah he, he plots or plans to come against us He plots and plans, how do I cause you to just question God just a little bit, so that all of a sudden, something that should be absolutely wrong to you begins to make sense to you, all right? He's no longer able to do that. Um, I was reading through the paper last week, and this just just hit me like a brick. Reading through the sports section, you know, most of us, we think, well, the sports section is the best part of the whole, other than the comics, the sports is the best part of the whole paper, right? Because you get your, your football updates and baseball and basketball, all that good stuff. Well, struck me last week. I'm reading through the sports section, and at least half of the stories were about lawyers, and issues going on in 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 the sports world, including uh, a decision that had to be made in North Carolina, and so the the, the petitioners. Had put on the table this question about bathrooms, given the fact that we live in a world where we're getting rid of all that ancient, bad, you know, old-fashioned thinking. Like, you know, like like people getting married to the same sex. That's why why would you want to stop that? It's just a beautiful thing. Boys becoming girls, girls becoming boys, it's just a beautiful thing. So if we're in that age where we get rid of all that old fashioned thinking, we got to change the signs of the bathroom. I think you got what, maybe you have like a men's bathroom, a woman's bathroom, and an it. Would be, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's kind of what was on the table. They said, listen, we've got these people and they're, they're, they're in sports, right? Um, that same exact week, last week, 60 Minutes did a story on a young, young man who came who came to to Harvard University, joined their swim team, got a scholarship to their swim team. I guess it was a young woman who got this scholarship, had the sex change, and now is swimming for Harvard's men's swimming team. Okay. So the question on the table in North Carolina was, which bathroom? I'm transgender. I used to be a guy. Now I'm a girl, so I can go to the girls' bathroom, right? Well, you look at that thing and you're like, Uh, boy! how did we get here? That's my first thought is how in the world did we ever get here, okay? Uh, My second thought is thank you, Lord, for taking my father out of this world when he did because he would be like flipping all of us. My dad's favorite language, he'd be like, we're gonna solve the world's problems, we're gonna bomb Washington. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that sounds really good. He would just be beside himself over this whole thing And I'm like, but how do you answer that question? Here's this person who presents, I'm a girl. I'm not a boy anymore. So I should go to the girl's bathroom. Well, North Carolina, they said, nah, here's where we're going to go by your birth certificate. So I guess we got to carry our birth certificates into the bathrooms now. We're like, here's mine. You got yours? I'm not coming in there until you show me your birth certificate. What in the world? How did we get here? That's, a, that's their decision. You got you get your birth certificate, whatever you were when you came into the world. If they called you a boy and you were a girl, but they called you a boy, you go to the boys' bathroom. Right? You may look like a girl now, you just go in there. This is messed up stuff. This is totally messed up. And yet, what does our world say? very next day, we got this singing artist. You know, Bruce Springsteen. I'm going to revolt against that state for putting that bad, evil... Moniker on these people, they should let them go to the bathroom that they are now, right? And I think to myself, what in the world has happened? This is called what? Deception, that we're able to actually make something horrible and an abomination look right and good, and guess what? There will be millions of churches in America that stand up and go, good for you, Bruce Springsteen we need to come against that evil state and we need to we need to be more respectful of people and caring and loving just as Jesus is caring and loving and let them go to the bathroom that they are now. What? You ever notice these words in Proverbs 14? I'm just going to read just a tiny bit of this because the Proverbs are so fun to read. If you're ever bored and you want something fun to read, just open Proverbs. They are fun. Now look at this. The wisest of woman builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Think about that, ladies. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. Isn't that true? But the lips of a wise will preserve them. Where there are, here this is a good where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. True. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Yes, go all the way down to verse number 12. This is the one I want you to circle. There is a way that seems right to a man. Remember Genesis 3? What did the Trinity say? Whoops, they've become like us. They've made themselves gods, thinking they know what is right and what is wrong. There is a way that seems right unto a man. But what? This end is the way of death. And what I would say to you today is I look at so much of what's going on in our culture today and the things that we're lifting up and putting in place will affect generations to come. Generations to come. And and I agree with people who are saying, you know, today my generation in, in the Christian church is looking at what's going on and we're horrified. We're like, stop. Please stop. God, you gotta stop this. And yet, by the time my grandkids grow up, all of this stuff that to us is, is happening around us will be normal. It'll be not it'll just be normal, normalized. Okay. How did Rome get to the place where you could walk down the streets and you see grown men holding the hands of little boys because pedophilia was just accepted? And you look at a you look at a temple and the columns are penises. And it's normal. And nobody stops and says, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. We're so far away from God, we're in huge trouble. Nobody says that. There's a way that seems right to a man. And I find that it's just little bit, little bit, little bit. That's how the deception works. It's not an all at once thing. It's just a little bit here and a little bit here and a little bit here. Then all of a sudden we go, whoa, wait a minute. How in the world do we get to this place that we're in? Deception. There was a plan. Right in the middle of the word, there was a plan. And the devil is so patient, he will work his plan in your life and mine. He sits and his demons watch you and they plan and they go, a little bit here, just a little bit here, just a little bit here. Um. It's it's the parent who comes to me and says, oh, "Pastor, I don't know what happened. You know, my my kiddo. We I mean, we we raised up in the church and we're going strong. And then they went to college and it seemed like things were going good. And they don't go to church anymore. In fact, they they really don't even believe in God anymore. Or they really question what God is. How did that happen? Little bit, little bit, little bit." Did it just happen? No. There is a plan in place. And that plan is being carried out by our enemy. And so what God has doing, does God sit up in heaven and say, oh, well, no. He says, I'm going to bring it all to an end. I will capture the beast, right? And I will capture the false prophet, the pseudo-prophetase, and I will bring them to an end. Come on, birds. Come on, birds. It's time for a party. You're going to eat their flesh because I'm going to destroy the enemy of my body. In the meantime, until this day comes, no wonder the scripture is calling us individually and in our homes to be doing what? The only way you fight deception is with what? Truth. If you don't know the truth, you will be deceived. The only way you fight deception is have a plan. That's why I like to ask moms and dads particularly, I go, what's your plan? How are you carrying out a plan in your family today to make sure that your kids are learning the truth, growing up so that that battle that's going on in their lives for their souls, there, there's a fight back. So the day I go off to college, I guarantee you when I go off to college, there's all kinds of stuff coming at me. I'm able to say, you know what? There, there was a plan in my life and there's a plan right now. I'm coming against that. I'm fighting the battle because it is a battle for our souls. I promise you that. So that's what I say is is we're getting to see the fact that at the end, boom, our enemy is crushed. But in the meantime, it is so imperative for us to say, no, let's put a plan in place for our lives so that we're fighting back against this enemy that's coming against us. All right, now notice, notice the very ending of this. One, one last piece that's kind of cool to me. Once the prophet, the false prophet, and the beast are, are caught, um, what happens to it? Well, here's what happens to it. It says these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with Sulfur. So the beast and um, the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay? I just wanted for a minute here to come back over here. This lake of fire idea. Um, We've talked about this a little bit. But I wanted to give you one other cross-reference that's good because the picture that you have is the, the beast, the false prophet, Satan himself. At the very end, what happens to him? They're confined to hell. Now again, we're living in a culture today that says, come on, Pastor Luke. That is just old-fashioned stuff. You're going to talk about hell? we're living in a culture that constantly asks me the question, how can you, some preacher guy, stand up in front of your church and say that God is good and then talk about hell? Why would a good God take His creation, His people, and put them in hell? That makes no sense at all. If He's a loving God, then we don't have a hell. Well, my answer back is, I'll tell you what kind of a God puts people and his enemy into a hell that will last forever. I'll tell you about that God. He's a good and loving and just God. He is just. And He's he told His creation from the very beginning, We will either have a relationship intimately with one another through faith, or we will be separated for eternity. There's no in between. And so when you look at the scriptures, do they support this? Absolutely, and all over the place. Is there a hell? My goodness, yes. And the theologians, and listen to me, there are, are, again, thousands and thousands of them in the United States who I say they are false prophets, and they are sitting in churches today, and they're telling people, you know what? We all die, we go to heaven. You just have to be true and honest to yourself. Don't be a terrorist and blow something up. What? First Th- second Thessalonians chapter 1. Just look at this with me uh, real quick because it's, it's just been instructive to me. 2 Thessalonians 1. Remember in Thessalonica when, when these two letters are being written by Paul, there's a question on the table um, relative to what is the second return of Jesus going to look like. And in verse number five of this first chapter, he says, this is the evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you. Uh, Remember, the Christians were undergoing what? Persecution. And so they're wondering, where's God in the midst of all this? He says, well, God is here, and He will afflict those who have afflicted you. Keep reading. He says, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and marveled amongst all those who believed. What's he saying? He's saying exactly what Revelation is saying. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. What is hell? It is fire and it does not quench. It does not burn out. And those who are in it are now separated from Jesus Christ for eternity, and our world says, well, that sounds like a mean, cruel God. You and I know it's a just God who is doing exactly what He said He would do. In fact, if you remove hell, you're taking taking the truth of God, what He spoke, His justice, and now you're turning God into someone that you want Him to be. Not who He is, someone you want Him to be. And by doing that, you've now called into question every single other teaching of the Bible. Either what he said is true or it's not. And when we make ourselves God, oh look, they've made themselves what? Gods. We know what's right and what's wrong. Then we reduce God to what? One of us. And we take the truth of God and we now selectively choose who I want God to be versus who he is. Who is God? He's a loving Gracious God, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of Himself, He gives you the the option, though, to do what to turn away from Him, and that will end in an eternity of fire. Now the beast and his false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. <whistles> come and eat, birds. Lord Jesus. We-